Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio. I, I didn't think I would survive. And I remember as I laid in the hospital bed, I thought back on my life. And, and I thought that, you know, I only had days left. I regretted the things that I hadn't done and, and I hadn't said. And of course, Caitlin was at the very top of that list. There I was in the ICU dying. That that really like kind of burned in, into my memory that we can't just kind of expect that things will work out and just, just plan for the future. You know, if it's something that's important, it's something you should do. In July of 2010, David Fagenbaum was a med student in his early 20s. He was in the best shape of his life. And then one morning he woke up in a pool of sweat. His lymph nodes were swollen, a weird rash had started to form on his chest. He had these sharp pains in his stomach. He went to the hospital and the doctors told him that his liver and kidneys had simply stopped working. Now, doctors had no idea what was wrong with him, why his body was failing him. But it was, and it was failing quickly. David would eventually be diagnosed with Castleman disease. It's a rare orphan disease with no cure and very little research dedicated to it. Over the next five years, he nearly died five times. Now, there's a certain clarity that comes from being so close to death. David never knew how much time he had left, but he knew he wanted to use that time the best that he could. He wanted to marry his college sweetheart, Caitlin, He wanted to be a dad. And he also wanted to cure this disease. This disease that could one day sneak back up on him and take all of that time away. There were no more drugs in development. There was no promising research being done. And I realized if I didn't dedicate my life to trying to find a treatment or a cure, that that no one else would. I'm Joe Piazza. This is Committed. Warning and spoiler alert here. We did this interview with a baby in the studio. A real live crawling around baby. David and Caitlin's baby. Actually, that's the spoiler. She was crawling all over us and you're going to hear her a lot in this episode. 
but let's back up a little bit. David and Caitlin first met at a bar in Raleigh. They already kind of knew each other from Facebook because they'd gone to the same high school a few years apart, and everyone is connected to everyone else on Facebook. So when they ran into each other, they did that thing where they hugged and pretended to know one another, even though they'd never actually met in person. There was this kind of like, I don't know, like instant feeling that, that we could just kind of, it just, it just felt pretty natural. Yeah, it definitely felt really natural. I was already planning our relationship in my head that night, where what we were going to do. You didn't know that yet, but... There was no, like, handshaking. It was, like, hugging, and then it was just, yeah, jumping right into to really personal things that, I, that I, I really would not typically bring up when I first met someone. David's mom had passed away a couple of years before he met Caitlin. It was a huge defining moment in his life, but it wasn't something that he shared with everyone. But there was something about Caitlin that made him want to open up to her. I would typically never feel so comfortable sharing uh, about my mom and, and, and about that experience. But yeah, there's something about, you know, this you know, random bar in Raleigh, North Carolina with a lot of underage people um, <laughs> that, that somehow um, made me feel comfortable. Just immediately felt I could see myself with her for a really long time. Caitlin was 19 and David was 21 when they met. She was still in college in North Carolina and he was about to go to grad school in London, but they decided to try to make it work. We decided when he was going to Oxford that we were going to try and make it work and set a time to Skype every day and and figure out how to make it work. I got some fun trips out of it, too, and go visit him, and he would come home to Raleigh every now and then. But it was definitely difficult. It was hard. We, like, made time for one another because, yeah, when you're an ocean away, you, you just have to be, you know, rigorous about making the time for one another. And this did work for a few years. It worked until David was a third-year medical student. Now, one thing you need to know about David is he becomes hyper-focused on whatever he's doing. In the beginning, that was great for his relationship with Caitlin because he turned that focus, that hyper-focus, onto making the long-distance work. But with the stresses and rigors of medical school, Caitlin started to feel like she wasn't a priority for David. Just felt like... I was being put on the back burner. He had a lot of things going on, and I just didn't feel like our relationship was being put first. And I wanted to come first as his girlfriend and potentially his fiance and then his wife. I wanted to to be that person. And so I felt like he always thought that I was just always going to be there. And I didn't think it would be the end, but I, I just felt like we needed a break. We needed a restart. We needed to do something, to just take some time to focus on ourselves. And and then maybe he would realize that he did want me in his life and he did want to make an effort. So they took a break. And it wasn't long after that that David started to feel sick. I just started noticing that I was getting more and more tired, tired in a way that I'd not been tired ever before. You would think that, like, of course, you're a med student. Like, being tired is part of being a med student. But the fatigue was so intense. After I would see a patient in a hospital room, I would find an empty room, and I would go take a nap on the hospital bed, and I would set my alarm for seven minutes later so I could sleep for six minutes, and I could wake up, go to see the next patient, take a nap for six minutes, go see the next patient. And the fatigue started to turn into other symptoms. So I noticed enlarged lymph nodes, bumps and lumps in my neck. I noticed I was having night sweats. Fluid was accumulating in my legs. All signs that were really, really concerning. 
actually even told my best friend that I thought I was dying. And, and that is certainly not within kind of character for me. But it was a really, really, really scary time. This fatigue really got worse and worse. And I eventually, after taking a medical school exam, went down the hall to the emergency department. And they ran blood tests. And the doctor came back in and said, David, your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart, and your lungs are shutting down. We need to hospitalize you right away. And it was, it was shocking because I, I knew that something was going on. I didn't know how bad it was. So they hospitalized me, and over the course of the next few days, I became extraordinarily sick. I had a retinal hemorrhage, so I went blind in my left eye. I gained about 70 pounds of fluid all over my body and started going really in and out of consciousness. And I was literally dying in the intensive care unit at Penn, all without a diagnosis. So I became incredibly ill, multi-organ failure. And it was just a time of just fear and kind of knowing that I was going to die, that, the, that I'd seen lab tests like this before. And when I had it, it had always been in patients that were dying. And so I kind of just started to accept that. Through all of it, David just kept thinking about Caitlin. But he didn't want her to see him like that. He wanted Caitlin to remember him as this strong, vibrant, healthy guy. The guy that she fell in love with. I didn't think I was going to survive, and I didn't want that to be the last memories. It was kind of based on my experience with, with my mom. I had been by her side throughout her entire illness and battle with cancer. And though I have the most amazing memories of my mom, um, I do also have some really tough memories from watching her take her last breath. When I thought about Caitlin coming to see me, I didn't look like I do today. I didn't look like I did before I became ill. I was very, very, very sick. And in hindsight, that shouldn't have mattered. I shouldn't have cared, you know, what I looked like. But remembering those memories that were burned in, in my memory from my mom made me feel like I didn't want Caitlin to see me like that. But I, I don't think if, if I could do it over again, I, I wouldn't have pushed her away. But Caitlin knew he was sick, thanks to social media. She'd seen people writing on his Facebook wall and asking if David was okay. People saying they'd pray for him. But she had no idea what was wrong with him. So she reached out. And he said, yeah, everything's fine. I'm, I'm like, leaving the hospital today. Do you remember that? I don't even remember that one. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was very sick because I left the hospital for, like, 12 hours. Yeah, he said, everything's fine. I'm leaving that. the hospital today. Caitlin's mom signed up for these notifications from a website called CaringBridge. It's this platform where families can share updates on a patient with a lot of people all at once. I had gone to the beach, and my mom called me that night, and she said, I just got a Caring Bridge notification that said David's taken a turn for the worse, and he's not going to make it. The next morning, I, I woke up and, and went straight to the hospital and went to go see him. David's sister was his gatekeeper at this time, and she met Caitlin in the lobby of the hospital. She felt really bad, but she told Caitlin she couldn't see him. She didn't tell me that he didn't want me to see him the way he was. She just, you know, just said, you can't see him, and it's not a good time. And I had to accept that. I didn't know it was David's doing. I thought maybe his sisters just didn't want me to see him. They were protecting him, so it was very difficult, very emotional, just a lot of unknowns. I didn't think I would survive. And I remember as I laid in the hospital bed, I thought back on my life and, and I thought that, you know, I only had days left. And I remember I didn't regret anything that I had done in my life. I regretted the things that I hadn't done and, and I hadn't said. And of course, Caitlin was at the very top of that list. It made me realize that the thing that we had said to each other, at least that I had been saying to myself, 
when we broke up was, we've got all the time in the world. We're 25 years old. If we're not together now, it'll work out if it's meant to be. And then there I was in the ICU dying. That really like kind of burned in, into my memory that we can't just expect that things will work out and just plan for the future. You know, if it's something that's important, it's something you should do. There was no diagnosis. David and his doctors had no clue what was wrong with him. All they knew was that his body just kept failing him. But then, almost as quickly as it had failed, it started to get better. Amazingly, kind of almost felt miraculously, I just started to improve. I was receiving high doses of corticosteroids, which we think maybe could have played some role early on. We didn't know what it was. We still had no diagnosis. After seven weeks, I was discharged. On the way out, the ICU doctor said, I don't know what it was, but let's hope it doesn't come back. (laughs) But it did come back came back just a few weeks later. And so when it came back, it came back really with a vengeance. I was back in multi-organ failure. I was on dialysis because my kidneys weren't working. I was getting a feeding tube. I was getting daily transfusions just to keep me alive. This time they gave David a diagnosis, but it wasn't an easy one. They said he had idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. It's a rare and deadly immune system disorder where basically your immune system, which is supposed to protect you, actually attacks all of your vital organs, and you go from being healthy like I was to to dying. Right around the time of the diagnosis, I was so sick that my doctors told my family I wouldn't survive, and a priest was called in to administer my last rites to me. Again, I said goodbye. Again, I, I didn't think I would survive. And I remember spending a lot of time thinking about Caitlin and a lot of time regretting that I hadn't spent those last six months with her. Um, I could have prioritized her because I didn't have any more time. Right around the time that David was having his last rites read to him, Caitlin decided to fly down to Raleigh again. She had no clue how sick he was. She just knew she had to see him. Again, I texted and called his sisters and asked them, can I come see him? When would be a good time? And at that moment, they were calling in a priest, and I had no idea. And they told me, you know, and again, it wasn't a good time. There were last rites. But there was also chemo. And that chemo saved David's life for a second time. I mean, literally just in time. I probably had hours or maybe a day if the chemo hadn't been given. But I survived. And when I got out of the hospital, first thing I wanted to do was call Caitlin. Because I just realized, I was like, this, like what, what was I thinking about when I was like having a priest reading my last rites? I mean, if, whatever you're thinking about when a priest is reading your last rites to you, if you make it, Like, whatever that is, you should go to that. That person, that thing, whatever it is. And so I did. And and so I I started calling Caitlin, and um, it just kind of felt natural. And so David and Caitlin started talking again. Slowly at first. Every Tuesday, right? Every Tuesday? It's Monday. Oh, every Monday Monday we'd talk. I'd call him on my way home from work. When I was walking, I lived in New York at the time, so I'd walk home from work and call him, and he would make his dad leave the room. Because I was in the, I was still hospital. He was in the hospital, and then he he just would use all his energy on that one phone conversation. And his dad said that he would come, his dad would come back in, and he looked exhausted from the conversation. My dad would, he would tease both of us, give us a hard time. He's like, what about me? You know, I'm here all day. You know, you're not, you're like unconscious around me. And then like Caitlin calls, you sit up and then you're exhausted the rest of the day. Once David was able to get out of the hospital, they made plans to see one another. But the disease came back again. 
this time in the form of multi-organ failure, and David needed more chemotherapy. This time, that one chemotherapy drug didn't work. I needed a combination of seven chemotherapies. Over the course of the next seven weeks, I was able to get out of the hospital, but we, like Caitlin said, we talked every week, and that was a real source of strength for me. I wanted to make this work or, or give it another try. I didn't know if we were going to get married. Or I didn't know how much time we had left, but I wanted to give it another try. Caitlin and David were in this strange limbo. At this point, they both knew they wanted to spend the rest of their lives together. They just didn't know how long David's life would be. There was no research and therefore no progress on a cure for Castleman disease. It's terrifying because you aren't able to plan your life out. You have to just live in the moment. And I feel like we did a lot of living in the moment at such a young age and trying to knock things off our bucket list early because we wanted to experience these things together. It's not easy. It's hard. And it takes a certain person. It takes a lot of strength. It did come back again. After a fourth flare-up of Castleman, with no cure in sight, David realized he needed to take his treatment into his own hands. See, like I mentioned before, Castleman is considered an orphan disease. It's a strange name. But an orphan disease is a rare disease, or a common disease, that's essentially been ignored. It means there hasn't been the kind of research that would find a cure. So orphan diseases are rare and neglected diseases. For Castleman disease was first described back in 1954, but for the next 60 years, basically no progress had been made. And so here I was diagnosed with this disease. It's diagnosed about 5,000 individuals each year in the U.S., so it's about as common as ALS. There are 7,000 rare diseases, most of which have very little public awareness, and most listeners would, would never have heard of them, like Castleman disease. But unfortunately, my disease, at least my subtype, one-third of us will die within five years of diagnosis, and another third will die within 10 years. So this is a really, really severe and, and serious illness. It took this happening four times before I was totally out of options. There were no more drugs in development. There was no promising research being done. And that's when I, and I realized if I didn't dedicate my life to trying to find a treatment or a cure, that, that no one else would. And that's when I, just, I promised Caitlin, my dad, my sisters, they were all in the room. And I turned to them and I said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to identify a treatment or a cure for this disease. And that was back in 2012. And since then, it's been basically the last eight years that I've been running full speed after trying to figure out a treatment and a cure for, for myself, but also for a lot of other patients with this disease. The, the book's titled Chasing My Cure, but really it's, it's about chasing our cure. It, it's so much bigger than just me. I decided to kind of get into warrior mode and start fighting back, realizing that if I was hoping for a cure, that I should turn that hope into action. And I said, start fighting and doing whatever I could. And so I started a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network to try to take an innovative approach to rare disease research, where we basically tried to be as efficient as possible with limited resources and really drive the science forward. I decided to do an MBA after medical school, and it also gave me time to keep conducting laboratory research that I wouldn't have had in a medical residency. Time. David just wanted more time. He wanted more time with Caitlin. He wanted more time to get engaged to Caitlin, to marry Caitlin, and maybe even to have a baby with Caitlin. But first, they did get engaged. We'll get to that right after a short break. Hey guys, Joe here. 
This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter, Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. I knew that Caitlin was interested in us getting married. I knew I wanted to get married, but I was so afraid of the life that I was going to be leading her towards. I lived certainly in this overtime mentality that every second counts and that I could be gone at any time. But And Caitlin was living in it because she was my girlfriend. But there's something different about getting married and putting her through that. And so I really struggled with whether or not it was the right thing to do. But when I decided it was the right thing to do... One of the things that David always loved about Caitlin is how amazing she is with kids, especially his niece, Anne-Marie. So he asked Anne-Marie to write Caitlin a card. It said, Dear Aunt Caitlin, I can't wait for your wedding day. Love, Anne-Marie. P.S. I make a really great flower girl. Caitlin said yes. She said yes, and they went to a big brunch with both their families. Then they started to plan their wedding. It was the first time the two of them had planned anything so far in advance in a really long time. And I'm so glad that we did do a year and a half because within that year and a half, he relapsed and was in the hospital and... And got liver cancer. Got liver cancer also. And so it, we just needed that extra time. You just have to think that, you know, maybe I got struck with really bad luck twice with Castleman's and with this... Uh, EMO4 uh, inflammatory fibroblastic tumor at the same time. It, it's possible, but we do suspect that maybe they're related in some way. We know that patients with Castleman disease have an increased risk of developing cancer. It's likely related. And then, with their wedding on the horizon, David relapsed in November of 2013. That's all I could think about was just, you know, make it to May 24th, 2014. And that was actually probably further out in my head than I normally had been thinking. It was four months away. And usually I was thinking more in, you know, days and weeks. That's, you know, I just wanted to make it to that date. David went back into chemotherapy and he relapsed again. Thankfully, leading up to that hospitalization, I've been uh, collecting blood samples on myself um, in the weeks and the months leading up to the relapse. And when I survived, I knew that it would be back soon if we didn't come up with something more definitive, because I just kept relapse after relapse. And so he started experimenting on himself. David figured his only option was to find a drug that had already been approved for the FDA for something else, for some other kind of disease. He hoped that drug could maybe work on Castleman disease. We couldn't develop a brand new drug in the next two months. What we really needed was to figure out what's wrong with me, and then is there a drug that can actually target that 
And, and I found a signal from within the data that suggested that this one particular communication line in the immune system was in overdrive. The best part about that particular communication line is that there's a drug that targets it. It was developed 30 years ago for kidney transplantation and had never been used before for Castleman disease, but really with no other options and with a wedding date, you know, a few months away that that's all I could think about making it. Two, I decided to take this big risk and start taking this drug, Serolimus, with the hope that it would keep me in remission. David pinned a lot of hope on this new drug. The question was, could it help ease the relapses that just kept coming back? It did, yeah. So, so we made it to our wedding day. My hair had just started to grow back. I had like a half a centimeter of hair on my head, but it kind of looked like maybe I had a buzz cut. And I'd just gone through all this stuff, and you can just... You can only imagine just how much happiness there was. It was like, we did it. Like, I'm on this drug. Like, we didn't know if I was going to make it till June, but who cares? It's May 24th, and I got hair back. I've got the greatest wife. Now wife. I can say wife. She's been with me through so much. Like, let's just have the, the greatest day ever. I just remember standing at the altar and, you know, saying, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And I remember that was the, the part of the day that, that just, it choked me up so much because I just kept thinking, Caitlin has been there through my in sickness part and has just been so amazing. You know, who else in their mid to late 20s can say that, that we know that, that we'll be there for one another? And I figured if we could be there in the sickness part that I figured that we could probably handle the health part if we ever got there. I feel like it wasn't that hard to say in sickness and in health because we had gone through it and seen it. And so I feel like a lot of people just say it because that's that's just what you say when those are your vows. And I really meant it because we had, we had been through it. But yeah, the day was just so wonderful. The energy of the whole day was perfect. It was a great day. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. David is a doctor and a scientist through and through. And so when he first started doing chemotherapy, years before he got engaged to Caitlin, when they were still on a break, he decided to freeze some of his sperm. With the chemotherapy that I've gotten over the years, with any one round, you could potentially never be able to have children. And I've had many rounds of chemotherapy. When I got sick for the fifth time, I had actually already banked the sperm. And I had this, like, almost like, I don't know if it's what the right term is. It's not a dream, but it was like, if 
I don't survive. And if Caitlin decides, which obviously would need to be her decision, would want to have a child, then I like shared with my sister Gina where this was banked. And but I told her I was like, don't say anything to Caitlin. But if Caitlin were ever to come to you about this, this is the information. It was with that sperm that Caitlin was able to undergo IVF and get pregnant with their daughter Amelia, the third participant in this interview. When we were talking here in the studio in Philadelphia, David had been in remission for six years with the help of the drug Serolimus. This drug has kept me well. It's now been over six years that I've been in remission on this drug, and we've actually now begun to a clinical trial and, and giving this drug to other patients as well. Every day, David wakes up and makes a trade-off. He knows doing research, the research that only he can do, could give him more time. But that research, going to work every day, that takes time away from being with Amelia and Caitlin. What I struggle with is that the more time I spend in the lab studying this disease, the more we learn about the disease and the longer time I'll have with Caitlin and Amelia because we'll make more progress. But that also means that the more time, that means more time away from them now. And so it's this balance that I really struggle with between working to find a treatment that can help me and help thousands of other patients versus savoring every moment that I have right now. I can't imagine what it's like living with this level of uncertainty. And I asked Caitlin about that. I kind of live my life thinking that it's not going to come back because if you do think that it's going to come back, how do you live your life? How can you live a normal life always thinking something's going to happen? And especially now that we have Amelia, for her, I just want her to get as much time with her dad as possible. And I think that's why I want balance for him and his life, and I want Amelia to have him in her life for as long as possible. I don't ever—I try not to go there. I just think that we live a normal life, and nothing's going to happen. And I take a a kind of a different approach to it. It's that I think that it—or I know that it will come back, but I know that I have power and control over when it does come back, what drugs are available for my disease. I'm doing everything today so that when it does come back, there is a treatment option that will help me to be here for longer. And I think both approaches are, you know, totally normal and healthy. You know, the one is that it won't come back. Let's, you know, embrace every moment. And then there is also it will come back because I I run a research lab and because I run this foundation dedicated to try to find new treatment options. I know that my day-to-day, when I'm not with Caitlin and Amelia, I'm actually working on something so that I can be with Caitlin and Amelia for longer. But that doesn't make it easy. (laughs) You know, it's just because I know objectively that that's what I need to do. It's not easy to leave every day to go work on that mission. But it's the way that I cope with knowing that it will come back is that I know that I'm doing everything I can today to make sure that when it does come back, that we have answers. When David's mom passed away, it changed his life. He was devastated. One day, he was cleaning out her purse, and he came across this piece of paper. It was a clipping from a newspaper, worn, yellowed, laminated to protect it. 
It's from Pope John Paul, and it says, Dear young people, whether you are believers or not, accept the call to be virtuous. This means being strong within, having a big heart, being rich in the highest sentiments, bold in the truth, courageous in freedom, constant in responsibility, generous in love, invincible in hope. David keeps it in his wallet with him. I watched him carefully pull it out, read it, and then gingerly place it back in. Taking it everywhere ever since that day in 2004. I loved that I could carry this on. The last part being kind of invincible and hope, I initially interpreted that as meaning that when we're hopeful for something, we can be kind of invincible and feeling confident that it will happen if it's the right thing to happen. But with each of these life experiences, I've begun to realize that hope is not enough, that hope should inspire action. And when it does inspire action, that's when the things you hope for become reality. For me, it's just embracing and just loving every minute with Amelia, with kids. Every day is different from the day before and just like soaking it up. I think family is everything and I just want to spend as much time as we can. I would love to have more kids down the road if it happens for us and just keep living as much of a normal life as we can. We recorded David and Caitlin's interview before the COVID-19 pandemic. It's one of the last interviews that we recorded for this season before we all got locked in our houses. Since then, David has switched a lot of his research for Castleman disease to trying to find a vaccine or cure for COVID. We asked him to record a voice memo on his phone about it so you guys could learn more. So like everyone else, I've been so concerned about COVID-19 and also so hopeful that a vaccine or an effective treatment will be discovered soon so that we can save lives and also so that we can return to our previous lives. So when I was hoping and praying that some lab somewhere would search for existing drugs that they could repurpose for COVID-19, I decided that I should listen to the lessons that I've been preaching about and actually turn my hope into action and to to try to um, identify drugs that could be repurposed for COVID-19. So I redirected my lab at UPenn and my foundation um, to focus on COVID-19, and I assembled a team of 31 people to go through 2,706 published articles and extract data on 9,152 patients. From that, we found 115 drugs have already been tried to treat COVID-19, and we're currently tracking them in an open source database so that physicians researchers, public health organizations, and most importantly, patients can benefit from this information. In addition, I'm also trying my best to share about the lessons that I've learned from my journey from nearly dying five times and fighting back through my book, Chasing My Cure, because I feel like these lessons are more relevant than ever. I feel like I was let in on these secrets about life that are so important to share today. So lessons like how I think Currently, we all feel like we're in overtime and our clocks could run out at any moment because of COVID-19. We all need to turn our hope into action, whether it's social distancing or hand washing. We all need to create silver linings in the midst of this really, really tough time. And maybe most importantly, we all need to find humor in the midst of uh, this really, really challenging moment because sometimes 
Um, humor is is the most important thing to help us to bond with the people that we love and to get through really, really tough times. It's something that's been so important to me. Thanks so much, Joe, for all you do to spread these sort of lessons with your listeners. And I hope you're well. Thanks, Joe. This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza. A special thanks to Dr. David and Caitlin Fagenbaum. You can pick up a copy of David's new book, Chasing My Cure, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. It was produced, edited, and mixed by Ramsey Yunt. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Klang. Theme song by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com. That's jo at committedpodcast.com. You can grab a copy of Joe's book, How to Be Married, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book.